Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief, and today we're talking about one of our favorite events of the year, the Pitchfork Music Festival. Here with me are Reviews Director Jeremy Larson and Managing Editor Amy Phillips. Welcome. Hello, Pooja. Hello. So every July, we pull off this amazing feat. We gather a group of our favorite artists and some up-and-coming bands to play at Union Park in the middle of Chicago. It's a three-day festival, and... Every year, it truly feels like we pulled off a miracle, like it will this weekend. (laughs) But before we get to this year's festival and some of the things that we're looking forward to, let's start at the beginning. Amy, you have been to every single one of the Pitchfork Music Festivals in Chicago. Is that right? I missed one 2017 because I had a three-week-old baby. But other than that... Yes, I have been to every single one. No excuse. (laughs) And you were at Pitchfork then? Yes, it was 2005. It was the Intonation Festival curated by Pitchfork. Anyway, it became the Pitchfork Music Festival the following year. But that first one was truly one of the most... There's really no better word than just magical experiences of my life because we were this very small staff that didn't know anything about running a music festival. Mm -hmm. The idea was just to have a kind of IRL, real-world version of the website, in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, here are all these bands that we've been championing, and they were all very tiny. I mean, the the headliners were Tortoise and the Decemberists. Mm -hmm. It was the biggest crowds that most of these bands had ever played to. And it just felt like this real moment. Indie rock was just coming into the peak of its cultural relevance. Mm -hmm. It was also the same summer that Lollapalooza debuted in Chicago as a single city festival. Um, It had, of course, been touring, you know, this juggernaut throughout the 90s and then kind of petered out. So we were really this underdog, small, Mm anti-Lollapalooza. We just couldn't believe that we pulled it off. I mean, I say we and full well I was not involved in the planning of this <laughs> festival right. at all. But just the, the the feeling among the staff was, holy shit, like, we can't believe this happened and all these people came and everybody's having such a great time. And even the bands were just flabbergasted. At the time, Pitchfork was based in Chicago. Yes. yes. So the staff yes. was there. Yep. It was this hometown, homegrown, community-first, local festival. Very much. And Jeremy, you've been going forever, too. I... I don't know. I'm a bit ashamed to say this. I'm a bit embarrassed <laughs> to say this. But my first Pitchfork Fest was 2019. I was actually there. I was at that first festival in 2005. I was Crazy. home from college and I volunteered 
Mm-hmm. I have many memories of that first festival, one of which was uh, watching the Hold Steady drink about a case of beer and <laughs> half a bottle of Jameson through like a 35 minute set. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was that kind of blew my 19 year old mind. And then uh, there was uh, this band called Death from Above 1979. I was obsessed with the band. Yeah, they're great. Them and Mastercraft. Yeah, they're yep. terrific. And they played uh, their their basically I had one album at that point and they basically played the entire thing and they played it. Uh, in the corner of Union Park where there was a baseball field. And at that point, the people at Pitchfork like didn't realize that you need to cover up the baseball field with these rubber mats. Like I said, this was our first time right. doing anything <laughs> like this. A lot of lessons have been learned since yes. then, you know. But like, but as soon as they started playing, there was this mosh pit that started going and it was it just looked like a sandstorm because there was just this cloud of orange baseball diamond dusk, like just just sort of hovering over the entire crowd. For one of my first music festivals, it's just an indelible memory. I want to kind of talk about, like, what makes Pitchfork Pitchforky. It's so hard to explain to people why we're better and different, which we are both better <laughs> yeah. and different yeah. than a lot of the— No bias here, but— um, you know. uh, a lot of the the festivals that are like largely controlled by Live Nation, AEG, the, the like huge festival creators, and I th- it shows, you know, like our our VIP seating is bleachers <laughs> that belong to a field, you know the um, the lines between the artists and the fans are pretty thin, you know, you see artists in the crowd. Fans often, like, take selfies with artists or, you know, you might see someone very cool walking around. The beauty of, and this is, like, full credit to the original Pitchfork folks, Ryan Schreiber, Chris Kasky, and company, the idea of actualizing our taste and, like, putting some money behind it also feels kind of powerful And I think that's, it is worth noting, right? Like this is its own entity and it's a beast to make. We have a festival team, Seth Dodson, Liz Pesnell, we love you so much. Um, We have a production team at Pluto in Chicago. Um, It is really important, I think, for them and for us, which is unique and unusual, that the festival lineup reflects the taste of the site. And so often that means that these are artists that haven't yet been given a festival tour. That kind of curation to me just feels really special. Not not to get emo about it, but it it is is special. (laughs) We're kind of putting our money where our mouth is for a lot of our artists there. And to speak sort of like critically is that, you know, when we run a, a review of a band's album, Rarely are we saying how great they are live. Like, rarely does that sort of factor into, like, what we're talking about with the album. But there are some bands where you're just sort of like, man, I, I wish I could just talk about, like, how good this band is live. Or, like, or because that really gets across a lot of, like, what's happening here, you know. And especially, like, this year, like, a, like, like Emdu Mokhtar or, like, Palm mm-hmm. and, like, Rashika Nayar. Like, those are, like, three just off the top of my head where I'm like, their live shows will make the album make more sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, that's... That is sort of how uh, this festival sort of like works in conjunction with with like what we do and what we love about like these some of these smaller artists and some of these some of these bands that we really champion too. So there is this sort of symbiotic relationship uh, between like what goes into booking this festival. Yeah, and I think this is a great segue to 
being proud of kind of introducing artists through the website and then through the festival. And then also the pride that we have years later when we say I was there first or we did that first. And what are some of those standouts? Like what are some of the artists that you saw at the fest that you're just like, there is no way in hell that we could get them now. Or <laughs> or just like, that is really meaningful that we were kind of on the ground with them. Well, the biggest, of course, is Kendrick, mm-hmm. who we first had in 2012, I believe. Yeah, right after Section 80. He, I believe, released swimming pools either that week or the week after. Mm-hmm. And he played on the side stage. Eight toys to the face. The craziest part about that set was about an hour before he took the stage, I was running the Pitchfork Twitter account at the time because... <laughs> Amy has done every job that's at just Pitchfork. That's it was. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and someone told me, okay, Lady Gaga is going to come and perform with Kendrick <laughs> uh, at our festival. You should tweet that. So I tweeted, hey, uh, come see Lady Gaga perform with Kendrick Lamar. And then that did not happen. She was there. She watched from the side stage. She sang along. Wild. She had a great time. She did not get on the stage. <laughs> but I did realize what an incredible moment it was because it was so clear that he was a star. Yeah, that, that was good. Um, there's a couple bands who've sort of who've gone from sort of middle of the day to headliners. Um, I know Fleet Foxes is one of them. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, you know, when they first released, they had a couple albums and uh, they played in the middle of the day and then they headlined, I don't know, like 2017, 2018. Like even more powerful than that was Robin, who played in 2010, right after Body Talk was released. And then she came back and headlined in 2019 when uh, she put out Honey. And that was a huge, like, release moment of that headlining show, for sure. Pooja, talk yeah. about the incredible moment we had watching Robin. <laughs> yeah. Um, One of my favorite. Last set of the night, Robin is playing. Literally, institutions around Chicago have in their windows, like, gone to see Robin were closed. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, Amy and I actually went to the sound booth, which is low-key the best place to to watch a headlining set from. If you ever have the chance, you must, simply. Yeah, one way to do it is to run Pitchfork. And and we got back there, and it was like Haim and their entire family and Charlie, who had just played... And everyone was losing their minds, like just completely like clutching their hearts, singing, tearing up, just like fully in joy of seeing Robin. And then when Dancing on My Own came on, it was like we were standing in the middle of 15,000 people. Seeing some of the people, including the headliners, standing next to you, losing their shit, being a fan right alongside you. Life highlight. And 
everyone is singing, dancing on my own. It was incredible. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So Animal Collective headlined in 2011. And if you've never seen an Animal Collective set, um, it, it can be challenging uh, if you're sort of not like a big fan of the band. They can they often will just premiere songs that are that have not been recorded yet. And uh, they just always constantly are playing jamming and figuring out new songs like on festival appearances. And this was pretty true of their 2011 headlining set for the first 45 minutes. And then people just sort of, you know, watching a sort of arms crossed, like, you know, chin scratching, being like, yes, this is interesting. Um, I love this band. And then at the very end, they go into the closing song off of Meriwether Post Pavilion called Brother Sport. And that song is sort of like a very up-tempo, energetic, um, you know, floor filler, basically. And I was sort of in the middle of the crowd and I could everybody just sort of rushing to the front of the stage. And everybody was just sort of like, oh, my God, finally, we can move and dance and hear a song that we all know. It was the weirdest thing because it was it's like, do you know that meme of like um, Prince or Harry where he's like giving that interview and then like back that ass up comes on and then he just like hauls ass out of there. That's basically what it was. Only it was Animal Collective's brother sport. That was a that was a really fun moment for me. Um, And Prince Harry is being called (laughs) to duty in the military. Right. Right. Exactly. Like there are these moments that are that bands will just sort of pull something out special for festivals. Um, and I think that happens a lot at Pitchfork. Case in point, last year, Japanese Breakfast mm-hmm. bringing up Jeff Tweedy, hometown hero, to do Wilco songs. Just amazing. Top building shape, voices escape, sing sad, sad songs. I do want to talk about that because I feel like, you know, for me, like we were watching artists be fans, which is so rare. And like that sense of community for me feels really special and important. I'm wondering if there are any examples of or like favorite moments of when artists you just saw an artist being a fan or just showing up. I mean, I remember in 2019, Solange was just hanging out, waiting for Earl Sweatshirt to go on, just loosely wandering about (laughs) waiting for Earl. Yep. Uh, 2015, Haim were in town because they were opening for Taylor Mm -hmm. Swift on the 1989 tour. And they had a day off and they just came to the fest and hung out. And I remember they were really excited to see churches and they were like singing along and just Mm -hmm. geeking out to churches. And I think that's really cool that like, 
hey, here's like a band that's playing literally the biggest tour on earth. And they're going to spend their off day just hanging at our fest. There's like a really funny photo of me um, watching Brian Wilson play. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And behind me is like Martin Courtney of Real Estate, just sort of like also watching <laughs> Real Estate. <laughs> oh, watching, I thought you were going to say John watching, Cusack. Oh, yeah. Well, John, oh, yeah. John, John Cusack, Cusack was also there. I forgot about John Cusack. Was like, and was, Joan. I forgot about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, I was so I was walking to, to go to that show and I was sort of like walking behind stage and Brian <laughs> Brian Wilson. I, I imagine Brian Wilson would just be would come in in like a private helicopter and just sort of be like dropped onto the stage. That is how big his celebrity is in my mind. Mm-hmm. But there was like a Toyota Corolla, an Uber that was like bringing him <laughs> like to the stage. And he as he was driving. We just sort of locked eyes for like, I would say, like a solid three seconds. And it was a moment that I will never forget, just sort of looking into sort of the blank face of Brian Wilson (laughs) as he's being uh, ushered to the stage in a Toyota Corolla. Jeremy, can you talk about Chief Keef? Just because I think that's a good example. Absolutely, I can. I, you know, this is the uh, uh, losing my edge portion of the podcast where the, it's the I was there. Uh, I was there <laughs> when Arab Music brought out Chief Keef in 2012 to play his hit song "Don't Like." That was I. I don't think anybody expected that. I don't think anybody. I didn't know that was going to happen. Did you know, Amy, that 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 was? I think we knew it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. I believe. It was like, this is maybe going to happen, but nobody count on it. Who knows? Mm -hmm. And then when it did, it was very exciting. Certainly nobody in the crowd expected it. And then, you know, and that at that moment in 2012, Don't Like was just was peaking. You know, it was just I think Kanye already sort of took it and and redid it for his song and that amplified it. But, you know, at that point, like Chief Keefe was Chicago royalty, you know, and mm-hmm. he came out and people just lost their mind when, when he did Don't Like. A fuck, nigga, that's that shit I don't like. A snitch, nigga, that's that shit I don't like. A bitch, nigga, that's that shit I don't like. Sneak, bitch, that's that shit I don't like. Don't like. And there was, you know, I think there was like 20 people on stage, just sort of like one of those moments where like the whole crew was there and like the entire Chicago drill scene um, just like showed up in, in Union Park. That was that was a really cool sort of like Chicago moment, too. Or I mean, like just was it last year? When did Angel Olsen play? 21, I think. When Sharon Van Etten just showed up yeah. but on her yep. Instagram tease that she was flying to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they played their wonderful duet like I used to song of the year 2021 in my book one of mm-hmm. uh, top five mm-hmm. really really good song so she literally flew to like flew to the fest to appear unannounced, you know, just to hang out with her friend on stage. That was really cool. That was a great moment. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through with Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. 
Listen to The Run-Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. I also think one of the unique things about the festival is that, like, everyone has a sense of humor about the whole thing. Um... The artists definitely understand that we are one of the last critical music publications standing, period. And so, you know, they might have their own opinions about things that have run on this site, for example. <laughs> um, though by them being there, that is kind of a understanding that we as a publication or many of the people on staff are really big fans, even if we didn't love one album over another. And... I feel like there is that level of like trust and kind of camaraderie between the artists and the publication that shows up at the festival, even when things are like, you know, not exactly aligned <laughs> in in their worlds. Um, most iconic in recent memory is when St. Vincent headlined. Yep. <laughs> I wasn't at that set, actually. Amy, what happened there? <laughs> So it was during a kind of like a skit that she does in in between songs where she makes a pretend phone call and there's crowd interaction, you know, in the classic like, that's not loud enough, you know, let me ask it again thing. She said, I give that response a 6.7, which is what we had given her most recent album and Everybody laughed. Nice, nice little, nice little Good ribbing sport. there. Good sport. Good sport. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I remember Zola Jesus in I think 2018 or 2019 getting up there and saying this set is dedicated to 5.9, which was what we had given her <laughs> last album. That's true. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it wouldn't be a JPEG Mafia set if there wasn't right. a fuck pitchfork chant right. Right. Go, going on. So, right. Um, exactly. you know, right. Look forward to that. It's, it's fun. <laughs> um, but I do, you know, the fact that he's back again is because there is some kind of understanding there. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I mean, like, I don't even know if it's in good fun, but it's just this sort of like, well, okay, now you have a, you have, you literally have the microphone phone now. <laughs> so. so speaking of JPEG Mafia, who's playing the festival, what are you most excited to see? Two bands that I'm really looking forward to. Um, one is uh, Soul Glow. We, uh, we never book like a ton of like heavy bands, but there's always one or two every year. And every year they just sort of like lay waste to the festival grounds. And mm-hmm. I feel like Soul Glow is really going to do that. They're a great hardcore band. Their record from last year is called Diaspora Problems. A great single off of that is called Jump or Get Jumped by the Future. I feel like people are just going to lose their minds. I think they're just going to sweat it out, start a pit just like really come away with like a new favorite live band uh, in mm-hmm. Soul Um And then, and an act that I've never seen, um, but have seen in different kinds of iterations <laughs> is The Smile, which is, you know, Radiohead asterisk. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnny Greenwood, Tom York, <laughs> and, and uh, drummer Tom Skinner. Uh, and they had a, they had a great album uh, last year, and they're performing a lot of songs off of that, plus a bunch of new songs uh, that are not released. I think he said he, they have like a whole canon of songs that they've been working on. That new track that they that like Lucy bending hectic oh, yeah, bending has hectic. 
one of the greatest climaxes yeah. I've heard this year. And just hearing that live at the fest is going to rule. If you're a fan of Radiohead, it's not that you know what to expect from a Radiohead show, but there's like a grandiosity to a Radiohead show narrowed down to like these three, these three musicians. They have a lot more fun on stage. They're a lot looser. You can just sort of tell like this is a really great artistic outlet for these three mm. people. And I think that's going to really like reflect uh, and on, in the live setting. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I am really, really, really excited to see Coffee. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Coffee puts out a song of the summer every year almost, like between lockdown and pull up and toast. Her last album was also just like equally so easily breezy and danceable totally. and chill and vibey. And to have her and Kalella back to back, I look forward to like laying flat on the ground, yeah. <laughs> staring roll. into the sky. And I missed the Always tour last year. So I can't wait to see freaking Belinda Says yes. Song of the Year 2022 yeah. live. It's a huge stage, and they're opening for Asterix Almost Radiohead. So <laughs> super, super excited for that. Amy, what about you? I am ridiculously excited to see Charlotte and Bullis. I loved their record from last year. I think it is going to be just a huge, fun dance party mm-hmm. that is going to make me feel great. Your call is out. I am also a big old softy, so I'm very excited for Bonnie Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are there any kind of lower on the bill acts that you think might hit this spot that we've been talking about earlier? Like that you might see them return to the festival. You should catch them now before they're too big. Well, on the... On the opposite end of the spectrum, um, a, a wonderful band, Palm, is retiring, uh, and mm, this yes. is one of their final shows. Uh, and they're mm-hmm. playing Saturday at one forty-five. And if I mean, honestly, if you've never seen Palm, like they're gonna like screw with your rods and cones and and <laughs> everything in your brain. Like it's really great. Don't miss that set. Amy, what about you? Okay, well, who we we all know is going to be a huge star, most likely, is Yaya mm-hmm. Bay. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Yaya Bay in a couple of years, we're going to be like, we can't afford Yaya Bay. Yeah. I'm really interested in seeing Emdu Mokhtar play mm-hmm. the fest. Um, I've only seen them play at BAM 
which is a small-ish venue in Brooklyn. And they feel like they are made for a small room, but their music feels hot to me. You know, like it feels... Yep. Exactly. You know, between them and Palm, there's a lot of jamming A lot of shredders. A lot of shredders. MJ Lenderman shredding. Uh, Illuminati hotties, they're going to shred. MD Mokdar shredding. Smile shredding. Big Thief, they're going to shred. Uh-huh. Good year for shredders. This is yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Good yeah. year for shredders. Well, Jeremy and Amy, thank you for being here. This was really fun. Thanks so much, Pooja. Thank you. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. And Pooja Patel, thanks for listening. Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.